If everybody will turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, we're going to revisit verse 2 again. And it says, Then he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray that the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I want to kind of, in Hebrews, it says this. In Hebrews, it says, Lo, I come in the volume of a book. A body thou hast prepared me. Lo, I come in the volume of a book. A body, body, thou hast prepared me. Listen to how he's coming. He's coming in the volume of a book. David actually says this. All my days are sealed in your book. Paul says, we are living epistles read of of all men. In the last chapter of John, in the last chapter, last verse actually, it says, the whole world, if the whole world were filled with books, there would not be enough to contain all the works that the Lord has done. We are living epistles. We are a book read of by all men. And then, listen to me, if all the world were full, filled with Book with books, there would not be enough to contain the works that he has done. Let me ask you this question What works has he done through your life? Because for him to do a work through your life, you have to do some work. You're like, No, God does it all. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. I can do, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He strengthens you, you do it. Some of you aren't doing what you're supposed to be doing. And you've, you've failed to really uh, show the world that you are strengthened and empowered to live a life different than the world. God is calling us. People are reading your life. They are reading the pages of your life. What does your life, what story does your life tell? Your children are reading the pages of your life. What story does your life tell? in the quiet recesses of your house. When you're driving down the road by yourself in the car and someone cuts you off, and that, that neighbor who you do not know, when you react and you yell or you give them, you do sign language to them and you do those things, when you cuss them out, when you do those things, what, when they read the story of your life in your car as you're driving through traffic, what, is your, what story does your life tell? When you're inconvenienced, when you go to Menards, and, and during the whole quarantine, you never had to wear a mask, but then the quarantine was lifted, and it, and it, and it, and it began to be lifted, then Menards began to make you wear a mask, and you had to buy it at the front door. Did you get mad when they told you you had to do that? Did you tell someone off? I mean, there are people that shoot people at Menards, evidently, right now. That's a true story in the news because they were told they had to wear a mask. So the, the, family, the couple got in the car, drove all the way home, got a gun, came back, and shot the guy that told him he had to wear a mask. What story does your life tell? You're like, well, I haven't murdered anybody at Menards lately, so my, I have a pretty good, I'm telling a pretty good story. I'm doing pretty good. Um, I want you to do this this week, and I know this is very conversational, but I think it's important because I'm trying to build on something. I want you to evaluate this week 
I want you to watch your life. I want, to listen. I want you to listen to your attitudes. I want you to feel what you're feeling in every moment when your wife talks to you, when you talk to your husband, when your kids talk to you. How irritated do you get? How impatient are you? What story is your life telling? I want you to evaluate that this week. Because the greatest form of discipleship is the life you live. Now, you can pray all day long, and you can join with me in the Scripture, and you can pray that God would use you as a laborer, but the reality is He can't even get you to have a good attitude. Many people want to be used great for His kingdom, but we can't walk faithfully and consistently in the small things. And He says, I need laborers. Laborers who will, who will do the small things because the greatest form of discipleship is a life that consistently follows me and lives according to what I call them to live to. I, I, want, I want to bring... I want to, listen, God chose the 77. That means He was very specific about who He chose and He sent out very specific people because He chose people that probably lived a life worthy of the calling. My question is, some of us haven't been called, and we have a calling on our life, but the call has not, the phone has not rung because our life is not worthy of that calling yet. You're like, well, Sean, God called all kinds of people that were messed up. I didn't say you couldn't be messed up. I said that there is a difference. It says that a righteous man falls seven times. What makes him righteous is not that he doesn't fall, but is that he continues to get back up again. We have people that have laid down, that have been beat up, that have been persecuted, that have been hurt to such a degree that they are beaten down and have not gotten back up again. God is looking for people who who won't be perfect, but who will rise up, who will be fully submitted. Their heart will be fully submitted. Not people who will never make a mistake, but people who will be fully submitted to Christ. He's coming in the volume of a book. There's only four Gospels in this book. But there's some other Gospels being written. They may not ever come into the holy canon of Scripture. But they are as relevant as anything Paul or Peter or Matthew or Mark ever wrote. Your life has a story. And your story is being told whether you like it or not. And and your story is your testimony. And your testimony is not some elevator pitch you give in church to be recognized. Your testimony is your life. And your testimony that is your life is as relevant as anything that Peter and Paul and Matthew and Mark ever offered. And sometimes when people won't pick up this book, it is, the, it is your book that people will read and see and be changed by. And if the earth was filled with books, there would not be enough to tell the whole story because though Jesus only lived 33 years in the earth, his story is not just 33 years old. For we are the body of Christ. And his story is still being told. What? See, the problem is not with the harvest. The problem is with the labors. 
I've said often that worship is essential. We talk about businesses being essential, what, what's essential during this time. Let me tell you what's essential. Worship. Worship is essential. When we engage in worship this morning, when we engage in worship in our small groups, when we open up His Word in our house, in, the, in our closet, in our quiet space, we are engaging in worship. When we, and it's not just a song we sing. It is a heart fully submitted to Him. It is a heart in service to Him. We come here this morning and we come early, as we learned last week, because we desire Him above all things. And we worship, and when we worship this morning, we are not gauging in this time we're living in. You're not in May 31st at 9 or 11 o'clock online. This is not where you are. For the moment you're logged in, and you purposed to be in His presence online, in your homes or wherever you are. But this earthly service is joining into an unending heavenly service. Your worship this morning is simply merged with a song that has never ceased being sung from the moment God stepped out of eternity and chose to be revealed. At that moment, heaven began to sing and angels began to worship. And our worship this morning simply joins a heavenly worship. That's why the scripture says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your greatest form of worship is when you live His will here on earth. And when we do that... Our life becomes a fragrance. Our life becomes a worship that then aligns with the heavenly kingdom. And we don't, we don't no longer... God allows us to step out of time and into eternity. When our life begins to line up with the kingdom of heaven, we no longer live in this moment. We escape time, which is basically a funnel which he put people in to function in for a little while, but God exists outside of time. So the, how do we draw near to God? He says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. How do we do that? Well, what's wrong with the big song and we raise our hands and we worship? Not necessarily. It is when our will submits to his will and our life begins to live like his life and our works begin to be like his works and our ways become like his ways and we look like the kingdom of heaven and when we walk this kind of life, we escape the funnel of time and we draw near to God in eternity and we align with heavenly worship. That's what God is longing for in our lives. When our earthly worship begins to imitate and connect with what's taking place in heaven, we escape the temporal. That's what worship is. Worship is temporarily experiencing, experiencing that which is eternal. Jesus says in Hebrews 10, 5, A body thou hast prepared for me. A body thou hast prepared for me. 1 Corinthians says, tells us that you, you and I am the body of Christ. You are the body of Christ. A members of members and members in particularly. In other words, he is still in his body. 
That's why it says, that's why Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He wasn't talking about a place to sleep. There was no body mature enough for the headship to rest on. There was no body that, he, that, that could bear the weight of what he wanted his body to bear. It says in the Bible that every one of you were born by an incorruptible seed, which is the Word of God. And if you are born by the Word, the Word cannot return turn to Him void, but will accomplish and prosper everything He sent it out to do. If you are a Word, and that's a big if, and I'm going to say it again, if you are a Word, if you were born by the Word, who is Jesus, you will not return to God until you accomplish everything that He sent you to do. Death is not the enemy stealing people's lives. It's not the enemy stealing people's lives. He's not killing people and taking people out. Death was destroyed on Calvary's cross. Death is merely a tool that God uses to let people know, you've done your job, now come back to me. The Bible says the spirit returns, the Bible says that the body returns to the dust, but the spirit returns to God. You cannot return somewhere unless you first came from there. You aren't returning from God unless you first came from God. Jesus himself said, you aren't allowed to ascend unless you first descend. In other words, there ain't nobody allowed to go to God unless they were first in heaven. Some of us need to begin to realize that the way we live should line up with where we came from. Some of us should begin to reshape the way we think and the way we operate, not based on where we are today, not based on our experiences here in the temporal, but we should go back to the source of where we originally came from and discover our identity in Christ. We were created, we were a thought before we were here on earth, and God wants to dis- us to discover who He intended us to be. But if you shape your life based on your experiences here in the temporal, you will never live to the fullness of what He wants you to live to in your life. You cannot return to God unless you first came to Him. And that's why some of you, some of you, not all of you, but some of you cannot be satisfied. You thought you were going crazy. You thought you were losing your mind. Because most people just want to get saved enough to get into heaven and saved enough to get out of hell. And we have bent and shaped a gospel and we have shaped a movement to satisfy the, the, the longing and the yearning of people's hearts to escape something and live the same old life they've ever always lived. To not be changed, but just be saved. Just give me a ticket and I'll live as I want to. And we've, we've shaped churches and ministries around this idea. 
for some reason, there are some of you who don't want to just be saved enough. There is something in you that says there has to be more to this life than simply being saved out of hell. There's got to be more. And when other Christians are just trying to make it in, you're trying to do something worthy of the glory of God. There are other people who, when they enter into a time of prayer, they're itching and trying to get out as fast as possible, but you labor and you long and you cry out to God asking for revival and asking for hearts to be changed and asking for lives to be rearranged and hearts to be softened. You're asking and seeking and laboring for revival to come. I want you to know you're not crazy. The Lord of the harvest is coming. And He wants people that can identify a harvest that is ripe. The Lord of the harvest is coming. And He is reaping fruit. And He's discarding everything else. Matthew 13, 44 says, Jesus can I just stop there? I just want to stop there. I, can't, I just can't move on from that. Listen, we have a responsibility in the church. We have a responsibility. I know everybody wants to see people come to life in Christ, and I understand that. But we cannot just abandon people because when we abandon people, we leave them at risk. Listen to me. I've had a lot of people that have... I'm just going to... This is, this is dangerous theological territory I'm walking into here. But I, just, I feel like it's important for me to say it. I have, we have seen over 2,000 people give their life to Christ in this church since we started. I quit counting numbers. But over 2,000 people. And we don't have 2,000 people in this church right now. And out of those, I've, I've actually interviewed and talked to and called many of those people who said that they don't even know what happened when they say, stood and gave their life to Christ. So just because someone makes a profession that they, they are a new believer in Christ does not make it so. This is going to make some people uncomfortable, but I'm just going to tell you that's the way I feel about it. Now, no one can determine a man's heart or a woman's heart, and we, we can't judge that. Only God can judge that. But I want you to know we have a responsibility to make sure that that seed that was put in them grows up into the full measure because the Lord of the harvest is coming to reap. It says one day he will return and he will reap those that are his own, that bear his fruit. And I want you to understand it is not just that you have a seed, but it is that you bear a fruit. A heart, if you want to be a part of the harvest, you want to be guaranteed to be part of the harvest, we need to see some fruit in your life. And it is our responsibility, church, to help people grow up into the full measure and the headship of who he is. And we need to grow up into and it is we, we gotta quit just getting trying to get people saved and then leaving them in the dust. I'm just, we just, I'm just, I'm really bothered by it. Like, totally disturbed by it. Matthew 13, 44 says this. Jesus, Matthew 13, 44, speaks of a man that bought a treasure in a field. So, Jesus doesn't just buy the treasure, he buys the whole field. He wants the messy parts too. I'm going to stop here. Part of the reason why the churches failed to disciple is because they're just excited to get people saved and they don't want to do the dirty work of discipling them. Listen, you're a laborer. 
And the labor is not just sowing, the labor is also raising people up. I know it isn't fun to water. I know it's not fun to till the ground. I know it's not fun to weed. It's fun to sow seed and see new believers come to Christ. But you're a laborer and you're called to do it all. It's the same field. It's the same labor. And we got to get in the business of valuing people enough to walk with them in life. Jesus buys the whole field. One of the reasons that prevent us from discipling people is that we only value the treasure in people and not the field in people. And so the moment that someone comes into our our church, becomes a believer in Christ, and we begin to see their field, we, we say, hey, that's too much work for me. I don't know if I want to spend time with you. You're, that's ugly. That makes me uncomfortable. I, that's dirty field. And so we separate ourselves from people the moment we see their field. And we fail to disciple them in the process. Jesus demonstrated that we are to take the whole field, not just the treasure. And his demonstration of this, and I want to say, I want to say thank you to the Lord for this because... My parts of my field don't look so good. I don't know about you. He wants the messy parts. That's why even after he changes the name of Jacob from Jacob to Israel, he kept calling him the God of Jacob in the Old Testament. Some of you won't know what that is. That's right, you can look up Jacob. Jacob was a hill gragger. He was a stealer. He was all kinds of trouble. He had all kinds of field and very little treasure, it seemed like. And then he encountered God, wrestled with God, and, um, and then God, we actually talked about a wrestling kind of match of sorts with Moses, and here Jacob has a wrestling match with God, and then he, he wrestled with God, he discovered something about God, and God changed his name to Israel. But then God continues to call him the God of Jacob. Why did he keep saying Jacob, even though that was his sinner's name? That's because God is not afraid to be identified with you when you're at your worst. Some of you fail to grow up into the full measure of who God is. It's because you're ashamed and you're afraid to be identified with you. And God isn't even afraid to be identified with you at your worst. Some of you put on a face and you act like you're something you're not because you're afraid for people to see who who you really are. But until you see who you really are, you will never discover who God wants you to be. For some of you today, when other folks don't want to sit next to you, that's okay. Leave the seat empty. Because when Jesus walks into the building, that seat's for him. He's not afraid to be identified with you. The value of the treasure, listen, the value of every treasure, and particularly in this text, is only determined by the worth of the field. The value of the treasure is determined by the worth of the field. It's said of this man that the man gave everything he had to purchase the field. He gave everything to get the field. Some of us say we treasure Christ, but we won't give anything to get it. The value 
of that treasure is determined by the worth of the field. What God is doing in your life is valuable to the, to, to, to the degree of sacrifice, suffering, and pain you're willing to endure. You are only allowed to reign with Him if you suffer with Him. Are you hearing me today? This is the Scripture. He buys the whole field. Not just the part with the treasure, because He wants all of you. He wants the part of you your family didn't want. He wants the part of you that your husband or your wife or your boyfriend or your girlfriend didn't want. He wants the part of you they almost put you out of the church for. God will take the whole field. It says of Judas, and he had some field in him. When Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, it says. The Bible says he took the silver to the high priest and says, I do not want it. And they refused to take it back because it was blood money. Now listen to me. It was blood money. It was blood money. They refused to take it back because it was blood money. And I want you to know whose blood money it was. It was Jesus' blood money. It was blood money. And it was the Sabbath. And they could not defile themselves by taking blood money. So then when Judas hung himself, they took that blood money and they bought a potter's field. Let me tell you what a potter's field is. A potter's field is where strangers were buried or non-Jews. It's where aliens and strangers were buried, those who were outside the camp. It's also where they threw broken and damaged pottery that was also a cemetery. So you have a cemetery where they put aliens and strangers and and people that were estranged, people that they did not know, and and they would actually take in this potter's field and they would throw pottery that was broken. It was marred. It it was not perfected. It it could not be used. It's like like that discount store they make with all the jacked up stuff. And so instead of putting a discount store out, they actually, at the marketplace, they would take the pottery and they would throw it. And there was all these broken pieces in this cemetery, which also held broken pieces of pottery that no one else could use. It says in the Bible that we are strangers and foreigners and aliens of this world, not worthy to be in the presence of God because of the sin in our lives. I want you to know today that we are and were in that field. We are the people in the field. We are the broken pieces of clay in the field. But through the grace of God and disobedience of one man, God still found favor and took his sin and turned it around for our benefit with the blood money of Jesus Christ. You were bought at a price. See, how can you be a laborer if you don't understand what God has done for you? We, we, we tend to tell people, just go to work. Just get to work. Just do that. Just, just Here's how you reap. Here's, here's how you see a harvest is proper. Here's how you do that. But we don't even know the value of our lives. John 1.10 says, He was in the world and the world was made by Him, but the world knew Him not. Oh, that sounds like our world today, does it not? He's in the world 
and the world was made by his hands, but the world doesn't even know him. And the disciples got the revelation of who he was when they sat around the fire with Jesus. They got the revelation of who he is, who he was, but they didn't know how to live after that level of sonship. Because there's a difference between having a head knowledge of who he is and walking it out with our lives. And laborers don't merely have a head knowledge. They don't just merely sit around bonfires and say things when Jesus says, Who am I? And he says, You are the Son of the living God. You are the Son of the living God. You are the Son of the living God, the Messiah, the one who was sent to us to redeem the world. When he says that, it's a head knowledge, but he still doesn't know how to live according to that type of sonship. See, he knows that Jesus is the Son, but he does not know that he is a Son. And today, the way we become laborers of Christ is not with a head knowledge of his sonship, but it was a heart knowledge that we have now been brought into the sonship and we should walk as he walks, that we might disciple as he discipled, that we may grow people up, that there may be a harvest worthy to reap in the future. See, most of us know about him, but there is no practical life attached to our head knowledge. It is not enough to know Him and not be able to experience what He has left for us to experience. Paul says, I would speak unto you as spiritual, but I can't because you're carnal. And here is a church, listen, a good church, a better church than our church, I think. Here is a church with all the gifts actively at work, fully together, unified, doing what God had told them to do. And Paul says of them, I can't even talk to you about spiritual things because you're carnal. So what do we discover from this? I think this is important for us as we learn how to become laborers and learn how to disciple and learn what the point of the church is. Here's a church with all the gifts in operation, but it's carnal. An abundance of spiritual gifts does not distinguish maturity and spirituality. It's not the gifts, it's the life. It's not the perfect life, it's the submitted life. Paul goes on to teach the Hebrews, you should be teaching others by now, but I still have to teach you the same things all over again. Here's the issue. Jesus tells his own disciples, I have many things to share with you, but you are not able to deal with it right now. There are places in God that he has purpose for us to go to, but we will not experience them, experience them until we are willing to grow up. Everybody wants to be gifted and everybody wants to be anointed and everybody wants to be used as a labor of God, but few want to live a committed life for Him in the private recesses of their life. Anointed ministry is always, I tell you, anointed ministry is always secondary consequence of private devotion. People that are used by God did not seek to be used by God. They just sought God.
I actually didn't want to be used by God. (laughs) I did not want to be a pastor. But I sought Him, and He sought me, and He apprehended me, and He took me. And I want you to know today, some of you haven't been taken by God. You've been smitten by Him. Listen to me today. Some of you are smitten with God, but you're not taken by Him. Because when He overshadows you like He overshadowed Mary, your will no longer exists. Some of you are like, I'm taken with God. You're not taken with God and you're not taken by God. You're smitten with Him. And some of us need to do some evaluation. And the reason why Jesus is crying out then and it speaks into our context today that there is need for laborers is because there are people who are not willing to lay their will down and and let His will reign supreme. Let Him be Lord of our life so that we would do the work of the harvest. See, every single one in here today, even every time I say that, and I'll, I'll close with this, and we're building up till, till the end, and I have uh, one more, maybe two more weeks. I have a couple more weeks. But I want to say this right here. And I know it, it, this may seem random, but I'm going somewhere, and this is all going to come together in the end, except for it's not going to be in one service. It's going to be in four. Whenever you hear me say harvest... You only place value on the conclusion. But the conclusion can never be achieved unless the labor has been done ahead of time. Okay, let me, let me say this. The laborers, it says, it didn't say laborers of the harvest. It says we need laborers. We need to send forth laborers. Laborers don't just reap, they do it all. And the reason why there's a problem with laborers is because we don't have people mature enough to do the hard stuff. They only want to do the fun stuff. And Paul says of churches like this, you're carnal. Because you only want to do stuff that's fun, that tickles your fancy, that gives you goosebumps. You only want to operate in your giftings, but you don't want to do the hard work. All the labor that took place before provided an opportunity for the harvest to even happen. We need laborers who won't just do the fun stuff, but will submit their whole life to Him in every aspect of their life so that we can grow people up into the full measure that we might reap a harvest. See, the problem is not with the people. The problem is with the laborers. The laborers can't even grow people up enough that a harvest will come. God's looking for laborers. He's looking for laborers. He's looking for people who will not just be empowered unto themselves but we'd be empowered to do the work that God has called us to.